Welcome to Rocks to Pearls, presented by the League of Dreams. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Borden. I was fortunate to play 14 years in the big leagues. There were ups and downs along the way I think everyone can relate to in everyday life. I learned ways to overcome adversity and persevere as I was open to learning from others by watching and listening. I'll be interviewing sports figures, business and community leaders, and amazing human beings that have had their own unique and inspiring stories. I look forward to sharing their process of turning rocks into pearls. My next guest is nationally known in the field of addiction, trauma, and sports psychiatry. He authored a book called Sports Psychiatry, Strategies for Life Balance and Peak Performance back in 2012. He's a retired Army colonel, and currently he's a leading sports psychiatrist and mental preparation trainer for the Baltimore Orioles. He worked with the Ravens and Colts as well. I'm honored to say he's a friend of mine and helped me when I came to the Baltimore Orioles, Dr. David McDuff. Let me start at the beginning, Doc. So the name of this podcast is, is called the Rocks to Pearl. And, and my story is when I, when I was a kid, you know, waiting for the bus, I used to pick up rocks and I'd throw them at a sign across the street. I used to pick up rocks and hit them with my bat. When I finally made it to uh, the minor leagues, the coaches would call the baseballs rocks, pick up the rocks, right? They were all beat up and torn up. And, and somebody got on one of my coaches one day and he, and he, you know, why do you call them rocks and, or this and that? And he said, well, if you want to hit pearls, you got to make it to the big leagues. So it's really about the process of, of starting at Little League, let's say, making it to the big leagues. But my goal is to kind of get professional people, all people, because I think everybody's got a great story. And Doc, you are nationally known, really world renowned, probably in sports psychiatry, you have a wonderful book that I read on uh, strategies for life balance and peak performance. You wrote it back in 2012, and I read that. And uh, I always get great information from from everything that you've published. And you know, I had the pleasure of meeting you back in 1997. You helped me tremendously in my career with establishing mental goals, mental strategies. I had. I had my best years as an offensive player and defensive player, actually, in Baltimore. And I think a lot of that had to do with a lot of the mental strategies. So you are incredible in what you do. And, and I want to lead everybody up to this point of here you are now. You've, uh, you're still with the Orioles. So you're at the pinnacle of sports psychiatry. Orioles, you've been with the Ravens. I think you're still with the Colts, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Three three years for them, 2015 okay. to 2018. Okay. But you, you've really done an incredible amount in your addiction and, and uh, you know, therapy, things like that. I, I want to get into that. But I need to go back <laughs> in time, if you can, to, like, your childhood. I mean, did you play sports? And ultimately, kind of what got you into this field? So. As a, as a child, I mean, uh, maybe you can kind of go back some of your, uh, I don't know, were you vulnerable at times as a kid? Because sometimes maybe if there are issues, not issues as a kid, but that might have pointed you in the direction you're in right now. Well, I was uh, born in Birmingham, Alabama, grew up in Mobile along the Gulf Coast. So I was really oriented toward the water and 
fishing, but I developed an interest in sport from an early age, as many people in Alabama do, and started following Alabama football with my father and my uncle. And from the time I was about, oh, probably six, you know, I would go to all of Alabama's home games. My uncle had two children who were in the Million Dollar Marching Band, and I was just steeped in Alabama football. I played uh, Little League Baseball and recreational basketball, but I was really small. I didn't even break five feet until I was in 10th grade. So I was really handicapped by my size, and I felt intimidated by larger, you know, more mature guys. But something else happened, you know, when I was 10 or 11, I started watching Wide World of Sports, if you remember that show with Trey Gowdy. It came on in 1961, and it started exposing individuals to international sports. And so I watched, you know, Olympic sports, bobsled, luge, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, biathlon, and just got so fascinated with the world of international sports uh, that I, I think it just carried me. Fast forward to uh, uh, children were athletic. I have four children, a son and three daughters, and they all played uh, sports you know, in their youth. I was their soccer coach. I was their basketball coach. Uh, as a basketball coach, uh, I coached uh, girls teams, and we prided ourselves on defense. I was never there for the draft, so the, the, the coaches who ran the league always gave me the weakest players, and I was <laughs> determined to make them into you know, defensive maniacs. And we really shut down some good offensive teams. And the, nice. they kept saying, who are these guys? I had girls who'd never played basketball before, but I, I taught them the fundamentals. And I learned the fundamentals because I wanted to play basketball in high school, but I was just too small. So I became the manager of the varsity basketball team in my high school and did that for three years. And, uh, the, the funny thing was my performance in sport, I was technically pretty good, but I had performance anxiety looking back on it. And I suspect just that being present in me and you know, just choking at key points and key games, I, I must have sort of sought out a solution for that. And I think I found it through the work I've done in sport. Wow. So interesting. So out of, out of high school, though, was that your direction going into college to study psychology or, and become a psych psychiatrist? No, I was a biology and a chemistry major. I went to a small Jesuit school in, in Alabama. It's called Spring Hill College, but it is the third oldest Jesuit college in the United States. And it, it was said when you entered there as a biology major, if you, you know, manage to make good grades and stay a biology major, because most of the people dropped out, uh, that you would be able to go to medical school. So we had 12 biology majors that graduated, 11 went to medical school, and one went to dental school. Uh, but we were the survivors. You know, we made it through all the very difficult 
uh, biology courses. Uh, it was an unusual situation. Back then we had a number of Jesuit priests who are our faculty members and they had to sit in the same assigned seat. I was number 43, you know, every time we came into the main lecture hall and they would always ask us questions at the beginning and uh, the instructors could tell if you had read the material. And if you had read it and you could answer, they went on to somebody else. They always found somebody who hadn't read the material. <laughs> uh, and it was a, you know, a Socratic method, a dialogue method of learning that really has stayed with me you know, in my teaching efforts at the School of Medicine. Yeah, very interesting. Now, okay, so you, you got into the School of Medicine, but where did the... Uh... Aren't you an army colonel as well? How, how did that happen? Well, uh, when I went to medical school, I didn't really have the funds to pay for it, and neither did my parents. Uh, I have a very strong military history in my family. Uh, my father and six of his brothers are World War II veterans. They're, they're all deceased now, uh, but two were fighter pilots uh, in the Pacific, and you know, it's unusual actually for fighter pilots to even have survived, you know, uh, battles in the Pacific. My father was a Marine. Uh, they didn't talk much about their experiences in World War II. I had an uncle, my mother's sister's husband, who rose to the rank of four-star admiral and became the vice chief of naval operations. So I was just surrounded by people with military uh, training and experienced, and uh, I joined the Army in medical school. They paid for my education. They gave me $400 a month. I felt like I was rich. Uh, it was tax-free as well, which made it even better. Uh, and then I ended up doing my uh, psychiatry residency uh, in the Army at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, which is in Fort Gordon, Georgia, near Augusta, Georgia. Uh, I really didn't know for sure that I wanted to go into psychiatry, but I took neurology and psychiatry and general medicine, emergency medicine that first year. And, and I just had an interest in the complexity of people, you know, biologically, psychologically, socioculturally. I was always, you know, oriented to look at the big picture, the whole person and try to figure out, you know, what their struggles were about. Uh, my entree into sports was just, you know, a real odd thing. After, you know, finishing most of my career you know, on active duty, I shifted to the reserves. Uh, in 1990, I got called to the Persian Gulf War, uh, went back on active duty, became the commander of a psychiatric detachment uh, in the Persian Gulf War, you know, so-called Desert Storm. Uh, then I got sent to an armored cavalry regiment, which these days you know, is not horses. It's uh, attack helicopters and Abrams tanks. And that was the lead unit that went right to the Republican Guard of the Iraqi army and pretty much annihilated it. Uh, and then we sat in Kuwait for about three weeks. I was in a pickup truck with a sergeant for three straight weeks. We didn't even move. We just ate and slept in the pickup truck. Uh, but I transitioned out of active duty to take a faculty position at University of Maryland School of Medicine. That was in 1988. 
and established the Division of Addiction Psychiatry there. But a funny thing happened in 1996. Uh, the Ravens were moving to Baltimore from Cleveland, uh, and the Orioles had moved from Memorial Stadium in 93 down uh, right next to the medical school. And in that same year, we got an opportunity to you know, apply to work for both those teams. So many people don't know that Art Modell, the uh, former owner of the Ravens, had uh, an orientation to uh, signing contracts to players who had had troubles in their past, particularly substance problems. And he would sign them to a contract and they had to agree to go to a, a group therapy meeting every week. It was called the inner circle. And he had a sports psychiatrist and psychologist run this and he had tremendous success turning around the lives of many of these men whose careers would have been lost. And so when the Ravens moved to uh, Baltimore, he said that the sports medicine team had to have an addiction psychiatrist. And there were four teams that bid uh, on the contract, Towson Sports Medicine, Union Sports Medicine, Hopkins, and University of Maryland. Uh, and I was the addiction psychiatrist for University of Maryland. But at the last minute, uh, Towson and Union called me and said, could you be our, uh, our addiction psychiatrist? We don't have one. And I said, <laughs> sure. So I had a three out of four chance of getting <laughs> selected. And fortunately, University of Maryland was selected. Uh, and then in that same year, uh, emergency medicine department was covering games. And back in those days, in, in 96, that's when uh, Davey Johnson was the manager, 96, 97, you know, tremendous attendance there, you know, it was a sellout almost every home game. And uh, he was talking with the general manager, then Pat Gillick, and they said they needed, you know, an employee assistance program, which we call team assistance program. And so we put in a submission for that. And in the same year, I started working in pro sports. Uh, then the following year, I started working in collegiate sports. And a couple of years later, I, I started working in high school sports. So I went in reverse order from most people from you know, the highest level, you know, down to the developmental level. Yeah. Uh, and then just started an office practice in, nine, in 97, where I saw, you know, athletes from many different sports. And I, I did a count one day, I met about 45 different sports at this point. Wow. Hey, that's amazing. And I guess uh, I want to go back first and foremost, thank you so much for your service. But how can it even compare uh, dealing with the, the, the Gulf War over there and then dealing with athletes. I mean, it, I don't know if that's even comparable. Dealing with athletes, it's got to be a cakewalk. Well, you know, there, there are more similarities than differences if you compare the military to team sports. You know, many of us with the military background call Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, tactical athletes. You know, they have to be fit. You know, they have to have endurance, stamina. They have to operate under adverse conditions. Uh, and uh, you, it, when you practice uh, military psychiatry, you practice it close to where the troops train. 
And so in my training and then uh, first assignment, which was in uh, Augsburg, Germany, after I left my residency in 1982, you know, I traveled around and met with commanders and their soldiers right where they lived and trained. And it imprinted in me the awareness that if you want to get people to access services for just life stresses or, or more serious mental health symptoms or disorders, you, know, you go hang around them for a while, let them develop trust in you, and then they'll just come up and talk to you. So I introduced that same model into professional sports. And I remember very clearly in those early years, you know, many people told me, you know, you can't go to the facility. The, the pro athletes won't talk to you. They'll think you're an agent of the owner or the general manager. And I said, I don't think that's true. I think I'll be able to make a connection with them. So I started going to the training room, you know, in football and the clubhouse uh, in baseball, you know, spent time in spring training had informal conversations, you know, in the locker room, in the training room, out on the practice field, developed relationships with most of the players. And what we noticed is that that on-site presence, we became integrated in with the trainers, the other team physicians, and we were included in that home away from home for those athletes. Uh, and I'm gratified now uh, that, uh, the National Football League two years ago mandated that each team have a mental health professional on site for at least 12 hours. And most of them now have a full-time person. So, so many things have changed. But in those early years, it was, you know, it was learning by experience and you know, learning the different sports, the technical aspects of the sports, how to be helpful to an individual just solely on the performance side and how to be helpful if they were experiencing distress in their family life and then how to help them if they, you know, developed a more serious uh, problem that could be treated with either therapy or medication. Yeah. And, and sometimes all the above all at once, uh, you know, I mean, it's really never ending. I think with, with all athletes, really. Um, I want to go back a little bit because uh, you have been so influential, I think, on a lot of players' careers, mine included. But uh, mentors for you, I, I think as a, as a kid, and I came back from a military background myself, so I know discipline was probably a huge part of, of you know, your youth. But was it your parents? Did you have coaches that were kind of mentors? And did you ever disappoint them? Did I ever disappoint my mentors? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure I did from time to time. I was an, an outspoken person. Uh, I grew up, you know, in a family that had lots of conflicts. My father was very stern and strict and had a bad temper. And my mother, you know, developed a, a problem with alcohol in her life and they would fight all the time. And so, you know, I sought refuge in my father's brother, my uncle, who lived in Birmingham. Uh, and I went to live with him almost every summer. And just that was when I started to travel. 
you know, by the time I got my license at 16, my sister had moved to New York City. Uh, and I drove there, you know, by myself at age 16, you know, to visit her uh, three or four times a year. So it's hard to say whether I disappointed my father. You know, I had uh, other mentors in school that uh, I really looked up to. I was good in math and science, and I had some wonderful teachers uh, in my high school, which was a large high school in Mobile. And then when I got into college, I had uh, just you know, electric teachers who pushed, pushed, pushed me. We had to write a paper for every biology and chemistry course that we took, and they just instilled you know, tremendous discipline in me and respect for hard work and you know, lifelong reading. Yeah. Well, you're, you're one of the most educated and mentally tough people I've ever met. And, you know, I can't thank you enough. My hope, Doc, is that, you know, we can continue, you know, talking uh, once a month, maybe once every two months, because finding out about your background was certainly one of my goals. And I think there are so many people in Rocks to Pearls that are going to be listening to this that are going to be interested on what it takes to be a top sports psychiatrist and, and what you deal with. And the stories that you have, I want to share with everybody because you've dealt with kids, you've dealt with top athletes, and you've had your own struggles, I think, at times. And I think it's great to talk about that. And you're one of the best. So, you know, in these times, I think, especially uh, coming out of COVID, man, we could probably talk all day about some mental health issues that I think we need to recognize. So I'm so excited to have you, hopefully, as part of this program as a regular, and uh, we can pound out a lot of these tough issues. I'd be delighted to do that, Mike. I, I tell you know, this story many times. When you first came to the Orioles, I, I noticed early on in your first year that you always went to a backfield after practice and took extra ground balls. And there's a concept in uh, sports psychology called deliberate practice, where you approach each practice with tremendous intensity. You have some stretch goals that you apply there and you get immediate feedback from the coach that's working for you. And so I just started following you out to that <laughs> outer field in the complex in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And I see you at, I see you as the epitome of the guy who outworked others. Uh, and that's often the case in pro sports is that you're not going to make it on talent alone. Yeah. And if you look closely at pro athletes, you know, they tend to have outworked others. And, you know, eventually I think most of them who succeed and stay in the league a long time as you did, you know, develop mental skills, you know, that, intersect with their, you know, physical and technical training that results in a, you know, full expression of the potential that they have. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. And that's really the goal, right? To have that complete player. And I think uh, my goal is to help these young kids really start that process and build it up the right way. Doc, thank you so much for being on Rocks to Pearls. And I look forward to talking to you again. Delighted to be here, Mike. Uh, call me back anytime. All right. All right, Doc. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Rocks to Pearls, brought to you by the League of Dreams. Each episode, we'll hear from business leaders, sports figures, and community leaders on their unique secrets to success. I'm Mike Bordick, and I hope you'll join us again. And remember, every day is a new opportunity. Stay determined.